I have uh, I feel impressed of the Lord to share with you over the next few weeks from the Gospel of John. Now I've preached considerable uh, material from the Gospel of John already in my tenure here. And by the way, last week marked uh, four years that since I've been here preaching, and uh, and everybody celebrated by staying at home last week. So. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> they were just taking a Sabbath rest. That's all it was. But uh, we do have quite a few that are out sick. And uh, so we want to just remember our congregation, those that are, that are dealing with uh, illness right now. And we will get through it. And uh, God will bring us through on the other side. And I, have, uh, I, I do feel impressed to share with you from the Gospel of John. And uh, I may not get as far today as I had planned to. Um, but we'll just take it as it goes. I don't have a, a real rigid outline. But I do want to begin in John chapter 20. And we'll, we'll go, we're going to do the first three chapters of John. And we'll just take our time going through them. And as we get closer to the, uh, the passion season, I, I want us to, to uh, spend some time on the upper room discourse. I've never really spent a lot of time preaching through that, and I want us to just take our time sharing what Jesus uh, shared in those intimate moments with his disciples. But we're in John chapter 20 right now, and this is after Jesus has appeared uh, to the, in the room with Thomas, and he has granted Thomas's request to, to uh, give him a little more evidence to believe. And it says in verse 29 of John 20, it says, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So if that includes you this morning, you're blessed. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are blessed having not seen him. Now, we get to verse 30, and John gives us the mission statement for his gospel. I, I love that. We don't have to wonder what John's purpose was. We don't have to wonder why he wrote the gospel of John. He's going to tell us. In verse 30, it says, And many other signs. Now, the word signs, and I apologize in advance, We might uh, this might feel more like a Greek primer today, but um, the word sign is samion, okay? Now, what does a sign do? A sign points to a greater reality. So he doesn't refer to them as miracles, but as signs. He says, and many other signs, Samayon, truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So this is not an exhaustive list of everything that Jesus said and did. Uh, John would go on to say in another place, if we were to try to catalog all of those things, he said even the world could not contain them. That's how uh, tremendous and, and how magnificent the scope of Jesus' ministry in those three years was. He says, but these, what? These signs, these semion, these signs pointing to greater realities are written for this purpose. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ or that he is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. And he is the son of God. Furthermore, 
and that believing you might have life through his name. Life is a prominent word in the Gospel of John. The Greek word is zoe. And it speaks not just of biological life. There's a Greek word that speaks to that. It's bios. It doesn't just speak of uh, involuntary responses and breathing and hearts beating and that kind of thing. It not only speaks of a quantity of life, but as a quality of life, a certain kind of life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, zoe, and that you might have it more abundantly or to the full. Christ wants you to live. He wants you to have a rich life, blessed with the blessings of God and all the fullness of his Holy Spirit, that he would, we would have life through his name. Now, some of the scholars are divided about the tense of the Greek word believe, uh, believing in verse 31. Some say it points to evangelism, bringing a person to an initial believing, saving faith in Jesus. And I believe that would be a valid point. But there's also those who believe that it is in the present continuous tense in the Greek, which would read this way. These things I, I write unto you that you may keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ. John stresses this need for perseverance in his gospel. You may remember the words of Jesus where he says, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He also said, I am the true vine. And he says, you have to abide in him. Abiding in him. Uh, John 3, 16, we all know it, but do we realize it's in the present continuous? He said, whosoever believes on him, that's in the present continuous. Whoever continues to believe on him would have eternal life and, and never perish. So these are the purposes of John. And so my purpose would be uh, none, none else than what John would have expressed for us that you, in the next few weeks, as we study the Gospel of John, that you would, if you have not initially, come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And if you are a believer, and I suspect many of us are believers here, that we, our faith would be galvanized, and it would be reinforced by the truth that Jesus Christ did these and said these things, that we might not only believe in Him, but that we might have life through His name. We need life. We need it so desperately. The world needs life. The world is looking for life in all the wrong places. They don't realize that the source of life is found none other than in Jesus Christ. Now, some may ask a question, and you can go ahead and make your way over to the first chapter of John if you want to. Some may ask the question, why do we have four Gospels? John's Gospel is referred to as the fourth gospel. And it was the last gospel that was written. Each one of the gospel writers gives us a snapshot of Jesus. None of them gives the full picture, as it were. Most believe that Mark was the first one that was written. And Mark's gospel, if you've ever read it, you can read it in one sitting, really, only 16 chapters. Mark's gospel is full of action. You'll find this phrase, and immediately and immediately, and immediately, and straightway, or suddenly. Uh, and that's, that gospel was written primarily to a Roman audience. They were people of action. And it shows Jesus as the servant. He's serving humanity. And it shows him in great power. It opens up with the ministry of John the Baptist and just uh, keeps on building steam as it goes. And then we have the gospel of Matthew, 
which was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And Matthew is concerned with showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's why you find this formula throughout the Gospel of Matthew, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. And, and you'll see that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And also we see that Matthew starts with a genealogy. Now Matthew's Gospel starts with a genealogy that begins with the first Jew, Abraham. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then he carries it all the way to Joseph, who was his legal guardian. We also have Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel was written primarily to a Greek or a Gentile audience. And Luke presents Jesus as son of man. And we not only, Matthew emphasizes much of his words. Mark emphasizes many of his deeds. Luke emphasizes much of what Jesus felt. As you read Luke's gospel, you will see how uh, he conveys the thoughts and the feelings that Jesus had. And he is referred to throughout the gospel of Luke as the son of man. And Luke's genealogy doesn't begin with the first Jew, but it goes all the way back to the first man. It goes back to Adam. Now John's gospel is completely unique. John doesn't begin with the, the, the earthly ministry of Jesus or even John the Baptist. And his genealogy doesn't begin with Abraham or even in the Garden of Eden with Adam. But John goes all the way back, all the way back to the beginning. And he presents Jesus as God in the flesh. And so John's point to us from the very outset, as we read the Gospel of John, we understand that the things that Jesus does are the things that God did. Jesus is God manifest. He is not an ordinary man. He is fully man, but also fully God, divine. And this is an important point. Now, John wrote this in the latter part of the first century. This was one of the last things that was entered into the canon of the Bible. Some believe it was written in the 90s A.D. I, don't, I couldn't say for sure. But it was one of the last things. And one of the things we know from studying church history is that there were many heresies that had begun to take root in the Christian church in those uh, latter parts of the first century. And by the way, vestiges of them are still alive and well today. Almost every cultic group on the face of the earth has some erroneous belief about either the humanity of Jesus or the deity of Christ. Every cultic group, and by the way, almost every religion believes in some kind of Jesus. The Muslims believe in Jesus. The Mormons believe in Jesus. The, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe in Jesus. But they believe, and I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but it's the truth, they believe in a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible. They're not the same. And what you believe about Jesus will determine where you spend eternity. And so you need to be careful that you believe in the Jesus of Scripture and not just some made-up Jesus of your own imagination or some in, uh, invention of the cultic groups. And so one of the main heresies in John's day was uh, not an attack on his deity, but actually an attack on his humanity. They couldn't believe that God would actually... Uh, condescend in such a way to dwell in a human body. They, be, they believe that matter was evil. 
And for God to dwell in human flesh just seemed like such a, uh, a radical concept. They just couldn't embrace that. But the truth of Scripture is that God, Jesus Christ, was fully human being. And he expressed, we see his humanity in many ways. He wept. He was tired. He was weary. He slept. He ate. Uh, he felt sadness. He felt compassion. Uh, he felt rejection. All of those things spoke of his humanity. But he was also fully God. And so the four Gospels give us a snapshot. Now here's another thing we need to learn as we look at the miracles. Jesus, excuse me, John chose seven simion, seven signs that point to Jesus Christ. Now he could have, seven is that perfect number of the Bible. We, we, we see that theme over and over. And John could have chosen any of the miracles, but the seven miracles or signs are unique and they point to the fact that Jesus is God. The seven miracles that John records are miracles that are different than ordinary miracles. That's why in the Gospel of John, you don't see any casting out of demons. People do that, right? Even the Pharisees were casting out demons. You don't see Jesus casting out demons. You don't see him teaching parables. There are a lot of teachers that taught you know, parables and, and kingdom concepts and stuff. But let's talk a little bit about the seven signs, okay? The first miracle that Jesus did, he turned the water into wine. And many of us Baptists wish he hadn't have done that, you know, because that messes with our theology. But Jesus turned the water into wine. And we'll talk about that. We're going to go through that first miracle, uh, Lord willing, if I live that long and we, you know, Jesus tarries, we're going to deal with that first sign. That'll be the only sign that we'll deal with in this series. But the first miracle he did was turning the water into wine. This was something that only God could do. This was a God-like miracle. Uh, only God can do as a Latin, Latin phrase, ex nihilo, something out of nothing. You know, he, Jesus creates something out of nothing. The first miracle is the water into wine, and that is a God-like miracle. The second miracle that he did was the healing of the nobleman's son. And if you've ever read the gospel and you know the particulars of that miracle, it was what I would call a long-distance miracle. Jesus did not heal the nobleman's son by laying hands on him. That would have been a typical way to do it. But Jesus simply spoke the word, and he said, Your son is made whole. And then the man goes home, and he finds his son had been healed at the very same hour. All right, what about the third miracle? That's the pool of Bethesda, the infirmed man, who had been 38 years in a crippled condition. And nobody was able to help him, and even he was helpless. He said, No man's able to put me into the water. When the angel troubles the water. And God healed him in the person of Jesus Christ. What about the fourth miracle? Well, I can tell you we're not going to get very far in the Gospel of John today. <laughs> the fourth miracle is one that all four Gospel writers record. That is the feeding of the 5,000. You'll find that in every one of the, uh, the Gospels. But only John gives us the explanation of the feeding of the 5,000. We see that not only did Jesus give bread to the people, but he said, I am the bread of life. Okay? So John gives us a unique perspective. What about the next miracle? The fifth miracle. After he fed the 5,000, he comes walking on the water. That's a rather godlike kind of thing to do, isn't it? But see, if you've created the oceans and the sea, it ain't no big deal. <laughs> it's amazing to me that the creation obeys God, a lot better than people do. 
Sometimes even sinners do. You know, God didn't have any trouble with the whole city of Nineveh, but he had one prophet that just gave him a fit. <laughs> Jonah. You know, it's God's people sometimes that give him the hardest time. But the creation obeys him. Even the wind and the waves obey him, the disciples said. What kind of man is this? He walked on the water. What about the sixth miracle? Sixth miracle was Jesus healing the man who had been blind from birth. And if you've ever read the discourse, you know that uh, there's a lot going on there because we see that there's not only those who are physically blind, but those who are spiritually blind. There is no blindness such as the one who will not see. And the Pharisees refused to see, even though the evidence was right before their very eyes. And see, even though that blind man, even though he could not see with his eyes, with his heart he could see with eyes of faith that Christ is the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. What about the last miracle? That's a real God kind of miracle. The last sign, the last simeon of the gospel of John is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now this was different from the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead or the widow of Nain's son because Lazarus by this time had been dead for four days and corruption had set in. This was a real God-like kind of miracle. And the, and the disciples, uh, Mary and Martha, understood this. That's what, that was that great uh, discourse where Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. So these seven signs point to the reality that Jesus is no ordinary teacher. He's no ordinary miracle maker. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. Praise God. The Gospel of John also has these seven unique I am statements. In the Greek is ego emi, ego emi, I am. And all of the Jews, uh, a lot of people foolishly, erroneously believe that Jesus never claimed to be God. They say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, the Pharisees sure understood what he was saying because they wanted to kill him. That was ultimately the charge that led to his crucifixion was the charge of blasphemy because he made himself equal with God because he is. Hallelujah. He says, I am, first of all, the bread of life. You see, those folks were following Jesus because he had, made, he had multiplied the loaves and the fishes. He said, do not labor for the bread which perishes, but labor for that which is eternal, that which lasts, the bread of life. He said, if you eat of this bread, you'll live forever. Praise God. The next I am statement. He says, I am the light of the world. Light is a major theme in the Gospel of John. The Greek word is phos, light. Light is a major theme. He says, I am the light of the world. That third I am statement. He says, I am the gate or I am the door of the sheep. There is no other entrance into the kingdom of God but by the Son, Jesus Christ. Like Brother Hal just got through singing to us, Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Because there's no other way. There is no other way to come to the Father but by Jesus Christ. He's the door of the sheep. And also, while we're talking about sheep, he says, By the way, I am the good shepherd. He's Jehovah Roe. The good shepherd. The shepherd of our soul. The bishop of our souls. We can commit our faith and our soul to God because he's a faithful and a good shepherd. How many of you prayed that little prayer? My mama Haney used to make us pray this prayer uh, every night when me and my cousins would lay down in the bed. 
Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Now, if you're still praying that prayer and that's the only prayer you pray, you ain't grown very much in the Lord. But for a little baby child, that's a good prayer to pray. And why can we pray that prayer? Because he's the good shepherd, you see. And Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. A stranger they'll not follow. He said, I know my sheep. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Hallelujah. What a great truth that is. He's the good shepherd. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, he told Mary and Martha. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. You know, if you didn't have anything else but that, the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, it would be sufficient to meet any challenge in your life. Would you agree that there would be no greater challenge in your life than raising somebody from the dead? I mean, that's a big deal, right? Lazarus was raised from the dead after being dead for four days. So let me ask you, do you have any problem in your life that compares with Lazarus' dilemma? Have any of you been dead more than a day or two? I wonder about some of you because you look real sleepy. <laughs> Have any of you been dead for four days? No. So comparatively speaking, whatever your problem is, it's not too big for God. You say, well, my marriage is dying. That's okay. Jesus is the God of the resurrection. You say, well, the doctor told me I've only got so many weeks to live. That's okay. Jesus Christ raises the dead. And you're immortal until God's ready for you anyway. You're not going to die until God's ready for you. And it's not for man to say. So when the doctor says to you, well, you've got so many weeks to live, you look that doctor in the eye, you say, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. And I won't go until one minute before God's ready for me. And until that, day, until that time, you're immortal. <laughs> He's the resurrection. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father by, by me. There's not many ways to God. You got your way, I got my way, we're all okay. No, there's only one way to God. And it's not by being a good person. Because only one is good enough, and that's Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus said, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. I am the source of all life, of all blessing, of all contentment. There's no other way to be happy but to give your life completely and totally in surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. In John's gospel, we see Jesus fulfilling the types and shadows of the Old Testament. We see that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Everything you read in the Old Testament points to the reality of Jesus Christ being the Son of God. When you read in Exodus about the Passover lamb, understand that that's not just about God delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt, but that's about a redeemer that would come into the world and that would give his life for you and me, that would die upon a cross, that would shed his blood, that when God sees the blood, he says, I'll pass over you. And when God sees you and you're in Christ, he doesn't see your filthy, wretched self-righteousness. He sees the blood of Jesus Christ. And he is satisfied by that. When John, excuse me, when Jesus meets Nathanael and he says, uh, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael's mind was blown. He says, How do you know me? And Jesus said, Well, before you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And that just melted Nathanael even more. That just melted his, his heart. 
and his soul. And I just happen to believe that when Nathaniel was sitting under that tree, now this is just Henry here, so you take it or leave it. I believe that when Nathaniel was sitting under that tree, he was reading in Genesis about Jacob's ladder, you know. Because when Jesus talked to Nathaniel, he says, Do you believe because I said I saw you under the fig tree? He said, You'll see greater things than these. He says, What if you see the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man? He's not only the Lamb of God, he's the ladder that Jacob saw that's the pathway from earth to heaven. Glory to God. He's Jacob's ladder. The Messiah is Jacob's ladder. He's the new temple, you see. And it's amazing. Uh, uh, I, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but he's the new temple. He's the serpent that was lifted up on the pole. Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he's not talking about uh, a serpent on a pole, but he's talking about the Son of God dying upon the cross, suspended between the heavens and the earth, taking upon himself the wrath of God, the punishment, the penalty that rightly belonged to you and to me. He's the bread of life. We've already talked about that. Let's talk a little bit about some of these, some of these, uh, these other motifs. In the first chapter of John, Jesus is referred to by seven different titles. Pretty cool. Never thought about this before. He's referred to as the Word, the Logos in Greek. He's the Logos. He's referred to as the Light, Phos in the Greek. He's called the Son of God. He's called the Lamb of God. John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God. He's called the Messiah. He's called the King of Israel. And then in the latter part of chapter 1, he's called the Son of Man. All of these titles. It's amazing too. John taught many spiritual truths, recorded Jesus teaching spiritual truths. And he, do you realize that almost every time Jesus gave a spiritual reality, it was misinterpreted as a natural thing? Let me give you a few examples. Uh, first of all, uh, the temple. Remember Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll, I'll raise it up. What did they think? They thought he was talking about tearing down Herod's temple. They didn't understand it. He talked to Nicodemus about being born again. What did Nicodemus think about? Going back into his mother's womb. That seemed like a radical idea. Uh, he talked about the new birth. He talked about living water. The woman at the well, he said, give me some water to drink. And he said, if you would ask of me, I would have given you living water to drink. And she didn't understand that at all, did she? She was thinking about well water. And Jesus was talking about living water. Now here's one that really uh, frosted their cupcake. When he fed the 5,000, after he fed the 5,000, he says, oh yeah, by the way, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And even the disciples were like, man, Jesus, why do you talk like this? <laughs> and they didn't interpret it the right way, and I'm not sure I would have interpreted it the right way. You know, I probably would have taken it at a wooden literal sense too, but uh, they didn't understand that. Spiritual freedom. Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And what did they say? We've never been in bondage. Well, you guys need to go back and read your history. I mean, this is, the history of Israel is a history of bondage, right? Egyptian bondage, Babylonian captivity, occupation by Rome. I mean, it's a history of, uh, and we went through the book of Daniel, so I don't need to elaborate on that. They didn't understand it. Uh, finally, sleep. They didn't understand sleep as a metaphor for death. Jesus said, our friend Lazarus 
sleeps. And what did Peter say? He said, well, it's good to get a nap, especially on Sunday. Can I get a witness? I don't know about you, but there's something about Sunday. Um, And they said, well, uh, he's sleeping. And Jesus said, no, you don't understand. Lazarus is dead. But here's a little nugget of truth for you. Whenever the Bible speaks of believers passing on to the next life, the Bible never says that a believer dies. You won't read one time where it says that a Christian died in the New Testament. And it'll say they slept, which is a euphemism for death. doesn't mean that their spirit is asleep. It means that their body's asleep. Their spirit is alive and well and keenly aware of everything that's going on in heaven. I don't know what they know about the earth, if anything. But sleep is a euphemism for death. Great day. It's 1120 and I haven't even made it to the first verse of John chapter 1. But I am going to read the first verse. I am going to read that first verse because it is so crucial to your understanding of who the Son of God is. John chapter 1 verse 1. In arche en halagas kai halagas en prostantheas katheas an halagas. No, I wasn't speaking in tongues. That was Greek, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And if you don't believe that, You don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is not only a man, he is fully man, but he is every bit God, just as much as the Father is God. Just as much as the Holy Spirit is God. Now the reason I read that to you in Greek is not because I wanted to be cute. It's because a lot of the cults distort the Greek manuscript. The Jehovah's Witnesses, in order to get around it, they've printed their own translation of John chapter 1, the New World Translation. And it says that the word was a God. The word was a God. But see, the Greek text will not allow such an interpretation. The definite article is there. He is the God. Not a God. He is the God. He says in verse 2, and we'll we'll only go to verse 3, okay? Is that okay? Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. Now, why does he say with God? Because he wants us to understand that God the Father and God the Son are two distinct separate persons, but both equally divine. Both God. Jehovah, Yahweh, is God, and Yeshua, Jesus Christos, Jesus, is God. Now, I don't understand all the intricacies of the Trinity. I don't believe you have to understand all the mysteries of the Trinity, but you had better believe it. It's a life and death proposition. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Okay. You say, well, Henry, I'm not a Greek scholar. I can't take someone to a Greek New Testament and prove to a Jehovah's Witness that the definite article is there. You know what? I don't believe you even need that because when you get to verse 3, 
It says, all things were made by him. By who? Not by the Father. By the Logos, the Son, the Word. All things were made. Does it say all things? A few things? Are there any exceptions? All things were made by the Logos. Okay? Now, why does John refer to Jesus Christ as the Logos? Kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? Why? Curious thing. Why refer to him as the Logos? Because every culture understood has some concept of the Word of God being a word being an agent of creation. The Greek philosophers believed the Logos was like the source. There was some wisdom that, uh, that existed prior to creation. I don't have enough faith to believe in atheism. I don't believe for a moment that the universe just big banged into existence other than the way God said that it big banged into existence where he says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's your big bang. There it is. It's not some evolutionary process that took billions of years. It's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. The Logos was in the beginning with God. All things were made by the Logos. And without him, understand this very clearly. Without Jesus, without the Logos, was not anything made that was made, not one, single, not one single neutron, not one single proton, not one atom, not one amoeba. Nothing was made without the Logos. Now, why am I stressing this? Because, and let me just close my Bible before I get to just preaching here till 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and I'll be here by myself, I know, <laughs> if I do that. Why does he stress this? Because he wants you to understand that there are two categories in the world. There are those things that are made, and then there's a maker. There are those things that are created, and then there's a creator. And what John wants you to understand before you read about any of the other miracles in the Gospel of John, before you read anything else, you need to understand that the one that John is talking about here is the one that made you and created you. <laughs> the one who knows every hair on your head, and some of us don't have as many as we used to. But God knows the ones that are hanging in there for dear life. He knows every thought in your mind. He, he knows every word before it's in your mouth. This is the one. The one who was at the beginning. So that's the gospel of John's introduction. And don't you know, I had planned to go all the way to verse 18. If you ask me nicely, I'll do it. Oh, Sister G. Nah, I'm not going to do that. In the beginning was the Logos. The Word. The Word was with God. Same was in the beginning with him. Without the Logos, nothing was made. You get to the very end. As far as you can look back into the galaxy, well, I don't know how, how, how long, how old the earth is. It doesn't matter. What matters is before the earth was, there was the Logos. Before any mountains, trees, streams, volcanoes, there was Jesus. 
Jesus didn't come on the scene in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem as a man, but prior to that, he existed. He always was. He always has been. He is God. Would you stand this morning? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you believe it? I believe it. Jesus is the Word. Now, what are the implications of that? Well, if Jesus is the Creator, then that means everything He says is true. You can take it to the bank. And when He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, you can take it to the bank because God cannot lie. God said, Jesus is the only way. If you have never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior this morning, I invite you to come to this altar. Maybe you're struggling with doubts. Maybe you're a believer that struggles with some unbelief. Maybe you've been listening to, let me tell you something right now. Don't ever go to the History Channel or the Discovery Channel or any secular outlet to learn about Jesus. Go straight to the source, the Word of God. Because those TV programs will always introduce some kind of error, some omission, some falsehood, some seed of doubt and unbelief that will be like a cancer that will eat away at your soul. Be careful what you listen to. Don't get your truth from the TV. Get your truth from the Logos, from the Word. And learn about who Jesus is from the Word of God. Maybe you, you need your faith galvanized. I believe God's going to do that for you in the next few weeks if, if you'll earnestly pray and go through the Word of God. Maybe you're here today and you've got some burden. Maybe nobody knows about it but just you and the Lord. But guess what? The one who created you knows exactly what you're going through today. And whatever your problem is, he's got the solution for it because he is the resurrection and the life. I'm going to invite you to come as they sing.